Hey everyone, this is Knight Errant Dean Thomas Keith, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker. This is episode 224 for June 14th, 2021, and it's going to be a big one. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, I do the interviews and they take up a couple weeks. There's just so much stuff can pile up in that couple weeks. But let me start with a couple quick announcements. The Challenge Coin promotion is still going on. You've got about two more weeks to capitalize on that. Uh, again, go to patreon.com, become a patron, and, uh, and depending on which level you sign up for, you can either get one coin or two coins. They're really cool. Again, there's no other way to get them, so get them while you can. Also, the book is on huge, huge sale. If you ever wanted to get it, there's literally never been a better time, uh, at least in terms of price. Just go to apress.com. They've got a 55% sale going on for all of their books, actually, both ebooks and paper books, uh, which, of course, includes mine. Uh, that's running till June 23rd, so uh, not a lot of time left on that. Uh, the code you want to use is SUMMER2021. So, you know, if you're thinking about it for yourself or updating an older version or getting one for a gift for somebody, now's a great time to do that. Also, you may have noticed that we had a guest. Uh, in fact, we had one of my new knight errants for the roundtable give the tagline for today's show. And we'll have more of those coming in the future because we've gotten some more, some more people signing up for the new level on Patreon. And also as part of that, I proclaim the knighthood to the realm, the entire realm right here, right now. And let's do another one. So fanfare, please. Our latest knight errant is Adam from Appalachia. Adam, thanks so much for becoming a patron. It really it really does make a big difference. Uh, uh, so really extremely happy for all of you that have signed up, and uh, hopefully we'll get some more before this uh, promotion runs out. And while these announcements and proclamations and things and the ability to do a custom tagline and be on the air, uh, all of that will continue to be part of the knight errant level. The coin thing only lasts so long. So for that reason, you want to do it sooner rather than later. Now, I want to mention briefly that we just crossed the 30th anniversary of PGP, or Pretty Good Privacy, which was a really, really big deal back in the day. We take encryption for granted to some extent today, but back then it was anything but uh, when the internet was really just kind of first coming around and the World Wide Web was starting to take off. Encryption was really weak, and the government did not want it to get better because <laughs> they wanted to be able to crack it at will. And so it was extremely hobbled. And Phil Zimmerman, who I've had on the show a couple times now, decided that was for the birds. And he knew people in particular that needed uh, to be able to have privacy and secrecy, I mean, for, for their own security. And so he came up with PGP and it evolved over the years. Uh, and amazing to think that it just crossed its 30th anniversary. Now, here's the really cool thing, though, for you guys. I am going to be putting together a little video tutorial on how to run your own PGP key signing party. Now, what the heck is that? <laughs> well, uh, when that video comes out, it'll explain all of it. But basically, you know, when you've got these public and private keys, you want everybody on the planet to have your public key, and that way they can send things to you that's encrypted, and only you with your private key can decrypt it. So everyone should get the public key, and only you should have the private key, which is why they're called public keys and private keys. But there's also the chance that you could have this man-in-the-middle scenario where someone could convince you to use their public key instead of uh, the one you intend uh, so that you encrypt it for them instead of for the intended party, and then they decrypt it, uh, read it, you know, get in on your conversation, and then turn around and re-encrypt it with the real public key and send it on uh, with the actual intended recipient being none the wiser. So part of what Phil and others uh, in, the com in the encryption community did to fix that was create this idea of signing someone else's key and generating a web of trust. So you could get together with someone else and when you, you know, verify their identity. And when I say verify, I mean, really verify. I mean, I don't care if you work with these people. I don't care if they're friends of yours, you know, whip out two forms of government ID. Uh, and let me make absolutely sure that you are who you say you are. And then you can sign their key. And what happens is over time, you gain a bunch of signatures so that when you find that public key out there on a public key server somewhere, you can see that it's been signed by many, many people. And that gives you much more reason to trust it, particularly if somebody in that web of trust, that, that key ring, uh, is somebody you also know and trust. Anyway, there's a lot more to it than that. It's really kind of fun. It's very geeky, very nostalgic. And so I thought it'd be really cool to put something together. But here's the kicker. I actually reached out to Phil Zimmerman, and he is going to work with me on this. So he's actually going to be part of this as well. So anyway, stay tuned. I will probably preview this with my patrons, and then eventually I will release it to everybody on the internet just for fun. 
Now, another news, uh, for some reason, if you're still using Chrome browser, you need to update it. There's been some more critical bugs found. Uh, again, I would strongly just recommend switching to Firefox. Not really for security reasons, honestly, more for uh, privacy reasons. But also, you know, Chrome is the target of uh, a lot of bad guys trying to hack and find these vulnerabilities because it's so popular. So, you know, part of the reason you might want to go to Firefox is it's maybe less likely to be a target for the bad guys. But it's also way, way better in terms of privacy. And then also Windows, uh, Patch Tuesday just came rolled around. And of course, there were a lot of critical bugs there too. Windows looks like it may be out for a really big new release. There's rumors of a Windows 11 uh, maybe coming out. So anyway, when that happens, I'll talk more about that. But in the meantime, as always, just make sure you're staying up to date, keeping that software up to date because bugs are found all the time and the bad guys jump on those bugs as soon as they're made public. All right, so what are we talking about today? We've got a lot of things to cover. I had to really kind of pick and choose um, what articles to cover today, and I still have plenty. I told you I was going to talk about Amazon's new sidewalk feature that was uh, turned on last week. And if you didn't do something about it, you're part of it as well, if you have any of the uh, modern Amazon Echo devices or a Ring doorbell. So I'm going to tell you uh, what that is all about and why you might want to disable that feature. But I also have a, actually a good article about the Ring doorbell. Uh, there's been some positive movements there. Actually, I've got several articles this week that are that are actually good news, um, which is always a nice change of pace. Uh, but the Ring just changed some policies that makes it uh, more public about what they're doing with police departments and how they're requesting videos from, from people with Ring doorbells about crime scene stuff. So uh, I'll talk about that. Apple has announced some new AirTag privacy improvements, uh, some welcome improvements, some things that I knew Apple would probably be doing, and they did. So uh, we'll talk about what those improvements are. But we'll also talk about some, we kind of saw this coming too, uh, when Apple released its app tracking transparency program and tried to lock down tracking of you through your mobile apps, that some app developers were going to try to work around that. So uh, some of them have apparently are and finding other ways to track you. So we're going to talk about that. There's a new WhatsApp quote-unquote security feature that I've got to talk about. And this one, it's going to be hard to hide my snark as I read the article. Um, but they're, you know, they're talking about a more convenient way to identify you when you either you know, uninstall and reinstall the app or install the app on a new phone. Uh, that's just ridiculous. Uh, so I'll tell you about that. TikTok, if you use that. Uh, you're going to definitely want to listen to this part of the show where they have recently changed their privacy policy, which, of course, nobody reads, to allow them co to collect some really creepy stuff. And it, I don't think there's any way to avoid that, but you should at least be aware of it if you're using TikTok or maybe one of your kids is using TikTok. And, of course, ransomware has always been in the news, but there's been some interesting developments with the Colonial Pipeline situation. Uh, Colonial Pipeline actually paid the ransom, but apparently the FBI figured out a way to get a good bit of that money back. And we're going to talk about how they did that, how they were able to do that, why they didn't get all the money, and some other questions that naturally arise from, from that. And then we're going to talk about another just amazing story about the FBI and how it managed to create a encrypted communication system, market it to bad guys, and for years used it to monitor criminal activities culminating in a massive worldwide bust. That is just a mind-blowing story. Uh, it's called Anom, A-N-O-M. You may have seen this on the news. We're definitely going to dig into that. And then I'm going to talk about yet another facial recognition app or web service that's super creepy, and it's just just a sign of things to come. This More and more of these things are going to happen until we regulate this stuff. And then finally, another victory. And now ending on a positive note, and this will lead into our tip of the week. And uh, Venmo, after some pressure, has finally made it possible for you to make your Venmo friends list private. Believe it or not, until now, it had to be public. And why that may not seem like a big deal, uh, this article that I'll read before we get to the tip of the week will explain why it really is. All right, so lots to cover today. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this has been in the news quite a bit. It's this new Amazon Sidewalk technology. There was a really nice long article from Jeffrey Fowler at the Washington Post. That's the guy that I've been wanting to get on the show for months now. Uh, I don't know if that's ever going to pan out. But anyway, another great article from him. And it's and I had to highly expurgate it to kind of 
cut it down, but there's still a lot to cover in here, and he raises a lot of really interesting points, and I wanted to read most of that article from the Washington Post. So here from Jeffrey Fowler uh, is a really good article on Amazon Sidewalk. So he says, There's an eyebrow-raising technology buried inside millions of Amazon Echo smart speakers and Ring security cameras. They have the ability to make a new kind of wireless network called Sidewalk that shares a slice of your home internet connection with your neighbor's devices. And on Tuesday, and this would have been last Tuesday... Amazon is switching Sidewalk on. For everyone. Sidewalk, which is built into Amazon's devices dating back to 2018, raises more red flags than a marching band parade. Is it secure enough to be activated in so many homes? Are we helping Amazon build a vast network that can be used for more surveillance? And why didn't Amazon ask us to opt in before activating a capability lying dormant in our devices? I recommend you opt out of Sidewalk 2 until we get much better answers to these questions. Sidewalk will blanket urban and suburban America with a low-bandwidth wireless network that can stretch half a mile and reach places and things that were once too hard or too expensive to connect. It could have many positive uses, such as making it easier to set up smart home appliances in places your Wi-Fi doesn't reach. That can help your neighbors and you. But by participating, you also have no control over what sort of data you're helping to transmit. In communities where Amazon Ring devices already over-police many doors and driveways, Sidewalk could power more surveillance, more trackers, maybe even Amazon drones. Amazon seems oblivious to many obvious consumer concerns with its increasingly invasive technology. So let me say it. Remotely activating our devices to build a closed Internet of Amazon is not okay. Amazon declined my request to interview an executive in charge of Sidewalk, but over email said it was about making our tech work better. And this is a quote from Manolo Arana, who is the general manager of Sidewalk. Uh, this is in his email response to Jeff. He said, quote, We live in an increasingly connected world where customers want their devices to stay connected. We built Sidewalk to improve customers' experiences with their devices and to benefit their communities, unquote. Reasons we would want Sidewalk, he said, include continuing to receive motion alerts from a ring security camera when they lose Wi-Fi or extending the range of smart lights. Later this month, Amazon is also adding Bluetooth Lost Item Tracker Tile and Smart Lock Maker Level to the Sidewalk network. And it is partnering with CareBand, a maker of wearable sensors for people with dementia, on a pilot test including indoor and outdoor tracking and a help button. With Sidewalk, Amazon is creating a more robust network. Your lowly Echo speaker or other compatible device is already connected to your home's private internet connection. When Amazon transforms it into a so-called Sidewalk bridge, your device creates a new network of its own that's not Wi-Fi. Instead, it uses common Bluetooth to connect devices nearby and another type of signal using the 900 MHz spectrum to connect to devices up to a half mile away. This new sidewalk network can't carry as much data as Wi-Fi, but it's still impressive. Sidewalk signals from all the Amazon devices in your neighborhood overlap and join together to create what's called a mesh network. And this is another quote from uh, that sidewalk rep from Amazon. Uh, says, quote, Wi-Fi is constrained mostly to your home. It doesn't have the range to go into your backyard and into the neighborhood. Cellular offers long-range connectivity, but it is expensive. Sidewalk splits the difference between those two and allows us to put billions of things at the edge of the network, unquote. But here's the rub. Sidewalk authorizes your Echo to share a portion of your home's internet bandwidth. It's up to 500 megabytes per month, the rough equivalent of more than 150 cell phone photos. Amazon caps it at a rate of 80 kilobits per second, which the company says is a fraction of the bandwidth used to stream a typical high-definition video. Still, this traffic could count toward your internet service provider's data cap if you've got one. The bill will be paid by you, not Amazon. Which raises the question, shouldn't Amazon be paying us? It's not hard to imagine Amazon could use Sidewalk for its own business, such as to track packages or connect up its delivery trucks. Arana said, quote, Our focus right now is to make our customers' devices work better. I'm not able to comment on future roadmap plans, unquote. Amazon says it built Sidewalk with three layers of encryption so that nobody can view the raw data passing through it. Not Amazon, not the people who are sharing their internet. Tech industry analyst Patrick Moorhead told me he is impressed by Amazon's efforts to keep snoopers out. And this is a quote from him. He says, quote, I haven't seen very many triple protected, triple encrypted systems out there. That said, there's no infallible system, unquote. Even security standards for Wi-Fi have been cracked over the years. Some other security pros just aren't keen on opening any kind of portal outside your home network's secured perimeters, no matter what Amazon promises. There's no evidence hackers or independent researchers have found problems with Sidewalk, but it also has yet to become a high-profile target. 
There are also big-picture concerns. Today, Amazon talks about Sidewalk as a way to help a roughly a quarter of a million American homes with smart home appliances get and stay connected. But Amazon doesn't usually have small ambitions. At the very least, Sidewalk could massively increase the reach of Amazon's thriving but controversial Ring security business, which police forces tapped for more than 20,000 requests for footage in 2020. Sidewalk would allow people and organizations to put Ring devices in places they weren't possible before. And this is a quote from Matthew Goriglia uh, from the EFF, who I've talked to on the show before. He says, quote, It is slowly eliminating the notion of off the grid. As long as Amazon is storing all of that data, all of that data can be accessible to police. It's impossible to think of things as just private or public surveillance anymore. Amazon has been vague about what types of data will be able to transfer across the network, aside from the innocuous-sounding examples, such as receiving alerts, software updates, and the location of lost items. And another quote from that representative... Melo says, quote, as a low bandwidth network, Sidewalk is intended to transmit small amounts of data, unquote. Uh, he says, last but not least, Amazon should have made sharing our internet connection something we opt into rather than just turning it on. Amazon is activating Sidewalk on devices going back to at least the third generation Echo speaker from 2018, though it tells me they can only join the Bluetooth part of the network. Amazon disclosed those devices had Bluetooth, but not that it might someday use them to build a network. Echo devices capable of joining the long-range part include the latest Echo and Echo Show 10, both announced in 2020. Another quote from Arana says, quote, We believe Sidewalk will provide value for every customer. We want to make it easy for them to take advantage of the benefits. Customers setting up an eligible Echo device for the first time have the opportunity to disable Sidewalk during device setup and will also receive a separate notification shortly after setup as well, unquote. When I, and of course that's Jeff, when I set up a new Echo speaker last November, the ALEXA app popped up a page about it with only two choices, enable and later. Amazon said earlier this year it changed that screen to make it clearer customers had the ability to opt out. Is sidewalk capability still lurking in even older Amazon devices to be activated in the future? Amazon's Arana would only answer, quote, we can't comment on future plans, unquote. Turning off Sidewalk isn't hard, but involves digging through some settings. You'll only see the option if you've already got a Sidewalk-eligible device installed and associated with your account. So that's what I was mentioning last week. I didn't, I can't see this. When I went to my ALXEA uh, application on my phone, it didn't even have this option. That's because I don't have any of the uh, devices that would support this. So you may not see that either. But if you do, here's how you turn it off. So here are the steps. And reading from the article... If you've got Echo devices, go to the ALEXA app on your phone, then tap the More icon. Then tap on Settings, then tap on Account Settings, then tap on Amazon Sidewalk. In there, make sure Enabled is set to Off. If you've got Ring devices, go to the Ring app on a phone, then tap the three bars at the top left corner to get to the menu. Then tap Control Center, then scroll down to Amazon Sidewalk. If you turn off Sidewalk on one device, it should cover you for all of them. Some people have complained they switched off the sidewalk setting and it turned itself back on. Amazon says it has fixed that problem. One more thing to keep in mind. There's no halfway option. If you turn off sidewalk, you won't be sharing your network with your neighbors, but your devices also won't be able to access its network. Again, that's part of a much longer article from Washington Post. Well worth read. As always, the links were in the show notes if you want to go check it out. But yeah, basically, you know, again, I, I get why they did this, I get even why they wanted to default to being on, because if it was defaulted to off, no one would turn it on. And kind of the whole benefit of this thing is that there's millions of these devices out there. And if we had, if Amazon had to wait one by one for people to be convinced to turn each of those on, you know, it probably never happened. So, but that does justify them doing it. And it honestly, it does kind of suck that if you want to do this at all, you've got to, you know, you've got to share it with everyone. You can't just do it for your own devices. So anyway, I, I don't think we've heard the last of this. We'll, we'll see what happens. But again, I think that like Jeff's saying, they, yeah, they did go to a lot of trouble to try to make this secure and private, uh, which is great. But, you know, who knows if they'll change that in the future. And also who knows what's going to happen when this is finally subjected to bad guys or security researchers trying to break it. So there's a lot of problems with this. And I, like, again, we're, this is not the last you've heard of this. I'm sure there will be future stories about you know, ripple effects from turning on this mesh network. All right, some positive news, though. Uh, here's a story from Apple Insider uh, about some changes, some welcome changes to uh, Ring Video Doorbell, which is owned by Amazon uh, now. They're sharing uh, videos with the police. So let me just read the article. 
Amazon is changing how law enforcement agencies can obtain footage from Ring, with the changes making it clear that the agencies are no longer allowed to contact users directly. Going forward, instead of emailing Ring users privately, law enforcement agencies will now be required to make public requests in the Neighbors app. And from a blog from Amazon, it says, quote, Request for assistance posts can only be issued from verified public safety agency profiles. We have guidelines in place to prevent overly broad requests, and all public safety agencies must abide by our request for assistance policy and guidelines, unquote. If an incident occurs in a user's area, law enforcement agencies have a 12-hour time frame around an incident to request footage from users in the relevant area. Amazon defines the relevant area as being contained within... 0.025 and 0.5 square miles around where an incident has occurred. Amazon does not clarify when the 12-hour time frame begins or ends, though. If an incident was suspected to occur between 9 p.m. and 12 a.m., there's no easy way to tell precisely how Amazon determines the relevant time frame. Users will then be able to tap a button labeled Tap Here to Help to provide the videos. If users choose, they can still directly contact law enforcement agencies. This would allow the sharing of any stored footage that they choose, likely without running it by Amazon first. The blog also states that police departments are not allowed to intentionally gather information about lawful activities with protests specifically labeled as prohibited. Requests may not contain hate speech, racial profiling, or other forms of prejudice, and that last part was in quotes, though what those other forms are aren't defined by the company. While this marks a significant change, civil liberties groups are still not swayed. According to Bloomberg, 35% of voters at Amazon's annual shareholder meeting last week voted for a resolution asking the company to commission a report on whether its surveillance gear spurs human rights violations. Previously, police and fire departments could obtain ring surveillance footage simply by asking for it. The only requirement was that Amazon would require a memo of understanding from the police. This process allowed Amazon to ghostwrite press releases from law enforcement, effectively making the security agencies an advertising venue. Okay, so anyway, that's some welcome change. Uh, transparency is always a good thing, you know, but it doesn't take away the fact that Amazon is building this massive surveillance network. And I think there's going to be other ripple effects from this that we'll see uh, down the line. But, you know, I will keep you posted on that. All right, moving on, another welcome development, and I, I foresaw this coming. Uh, this is from 9to5Mac. It's about some updates to the Apple AirTag privacy features. So uh, I'll just, very brief, let me just read this. Apple has announced a handful of changes designed to improve the privacy of AirTag item trackers. The company is adjusting the time it takes for AirTags to sound an alert after being separated from their owner, and Apple plans to release an Android app for detecting AirTags later this year. As first reported by CNET, Apple's rolling out this AirTag firmware update starting today and this would have been last week. AirTags will update automatically when in range of a connected iPhone. With this firmware update, an AirTag will now play a sound after it has been separated from its owner at a random time within an interval of 8 hours and 24 hours. At launch, AirTags played a sound after being separated from its owner for longer than 3 days. The company is also developing an app for Android users that will alert them to an AirTag potentially moving with them. The app will also detect other Find My-enabled accessories. It does not sound like this application will allow our Android users to set up and use AirTag. Instead, the app will be used to alert Android users to when an AirTag could be moving with them. AirTag features an NFC chip inside that Android users can already use to identify an AirTag. But this app will allow Android users to receive proactive alerts to alert them to unwanted tracking. So if you recall uh, the issue around this that was brought up by several people, not including myself was the use of these air tags to stalk people, right? I mean, I, uh, I'm some creep who wants to follow this lady home, but instead of doing it obvious, I slip it into her purse or slip it onto some part of her person or a grocery bag or whatever. And then I use the thing to track her home or whatever, you know, and by the way, you could have done this with tile trackers, other thing too. But the amazing thing about air tags is that there's so many devices that participate in the find my network that anyway, it's near global tracking. And so uh, what this basically says is, okay, so, so someone tries to do that, and uh, at least after some point of time and a much shorter time than it used to be, uh, this thing will start beeping um, and letting you know, hey, uh, I'm away from my owner now. You know, you might want to check and find this thing and see what's going on. And for iPhone users, you also get, I guess, some sort of alert about this if there's something, somebody else's AirTag moving along with you that seems suspicious. Uh, and now Android users will have the same capability coming at some point later this year. And so I got out my AirTag to check its firmware, uh, and it's not updated yet, so uh, hopefully it will soon. But if you want to check yours uh, on your iPhone, go to your Find My app, 
uh, tap on the items tab at the bottom, tap on the air tag uh, that you want to check in the list if you've got more than one. And in that view, tap on the name of the air tag to see the current firmware version. The one you're looking for is 1.0.276. If it's that or later, you've got the, the updated firmware that has these new privacy features. Now, from what I read, there's no way to force this to happen. You just have to kind of keep it close to your, to an iPhone and it will update itself eventually. Mine has not done that yet, but just make sure it's in range of your iPhone. And, uh, these, you know, sometimes these things are rolled out over time. So my guess is sometime over the next week or two, that update should happen. All right. In other Apple news, and we saw this coming too, but in response to Apple's new app tracking transparency, some, some of these apps are just can't give up that data. They, they want to track people. So they're trying to find ways to work around it. And in this article, it actually complains that uh, that may even be a legal problem for Apple. So uh, this is from Mac rumors. It says, Apple's facing increasing pressure to tighten its app tracking transparency rules after it was found that third parties are using workarounds to identify users who do not consent to be tracked, according to the Financial Times. Apple rules around app tracking transparency, which came into effect as part of iOS 14.5 and iPadOS 14.5, require apps to ask for consent to track users across websites and apps so that they can be targeted with advertising. According to Eric Seifert, or Sofert, S-E-U-F-E-R-T. I'll, I'll call that Seifert. According to Eric Seifert, a marketing strategy consultant, many apps are using workaround methods to identify users who do not consent to being tracked, meaning that the amount of data being collected from many users is de facto unchanged. According to an email seen by the Financial Times, one app vendor told its clients that it had managed to continue collecting data on over 95% of its iOS users using device and network information such as IP addresses to determine their users' identities. This secretive technique, known as fingerprinting, is banned by Apple, which insists that developers, quote, may not derive data from a device for the purpose of uniquely identifying it, unquote. Some ad tech groups used by thousands of developers believe that looser, quote-unquote, probabilistic methods of user identification, which group users by behavior, are allowed under Apple's rules since they rely on temporary aggregated data rather than creating unique or permanent device IDs. The situation regarding workarounds and Apple's lack of enforcement has created confusion around what Apple's rules actually allow. Apple told Financial Times, quote, We believe strongly that users should be asked for their permission before being tracked. Apps that are found to disregard the user's choice will be rejected, unquote. Apple declined to comment about whether it makes a distinction between fingerprinting and probabilistic matching under its rules. Apple has suggested that third parties' ability to track users is blocked when users ask them to stop, but if this is not the case, Apple may be subject to litigation over marketing rhetoric and reality. Founder of the Yale Privacy Lab, Sean O'Brien, who we've had on the show before, accused Apple of being, quote, extremely disingenuous, unquote, and lauding its privacy features without adequately enforcing them. And this is a quote from uh, Sean. He says, Apple may find this out the hard way, as Google has in the past, if the company is hit with lawsuits for misleading customers in regard to privacy. Just as it was discovered that Google's location history was never actually turned off in 2018, I think we will find that Apple still allows apps to peer into the windows of consumers' lives, unquote. I would draw a distinction there. I, I, in this case, it was Google that was benefiting from that location tra tracking fiasco. Uh, if you recall, there was a setting that you could go and turn off saying, you know, disallow location, or maybe it was even disallow, disallow location tracking. I don't recall how, how it was phrased, but basically there were other ways because Google owns so many different things and in, infests our lives in so many ways. There were other ways for Google to track you besides you just reporting directly your GPS coordinates. And so they were sued because, you know, when someone turns off location tracking, they assume that means all location tracking. And that was not the case. Uh, in this case, it's not Apple doing the tracking. It's Apple's trying to prevent others from doing tracking. When they say, you know, they're going to enforce that, we'll have to hope that they do. But, you know, these other companies are going to do their best to work around it too. And there's only so much Apple can do about that. So I'm not sure that really exposes Apple to legal issues here because it's not really them, you know, lying and saying, we're not tracking you when we actually are. It's them saying, we're doing our best to try to prevent others from tracking you and giving you the option to say no. And they're finding a way to work around that uh, without our permission or knowledge. So anyway, nevertheless, it's troubling, uh, but we saw this coming and it's going to be a cat and mouse game and it's going to be back and forth until again, until we have regulations that make it illegal uh, with some fines that matter to these huge corporations. So this next one is just, this next article is just killing me. It's from Tech Radar, and I'm, I, don't, I guess I don't read these guys that often, but 
I, 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 anyway, let me read this article. I'll try not to be super snarky, but it's going to be hard. Uh, and then I will give my, <laughs> I will give my opinion uh, after it's very short. It just says, WhatsApp is working on a new feature that will make logging into the encrypted messaging service less of a hassle and even more secure. And I, mm, okay, bite my tongue, keep going. Currently, when creating a new account or re-registering an existing one, WhatsApp users are required to provide a six-digit code delivered either by SMS or phone call. However, the company is developing a new feature called Flash Calls that uses information in the call log to expedite this process. The addition is expected to complement the upcoming multi-device support feature, which will allow WhatsApp accounts to be accessed across up to four devices. The flash calls option is currently still under development, but WhatsApp offered a first glimpse in the latest beta build for Android version 2.21.11.7. In order for the feature to function, users will first need to grant WhatsApp access to their call log and allow the service to manage calls on the device. This information will be used to facilitate quick login only, not for any other purposes. With flash calls activated, WhatsApp will place a call to the user's phone number and then hang up automatically. The purpose is to verify that the last number in the phone's call log matches the number that would usually deliver the six-digit code. This number is always unique, which should mean the system cannot be gamed to seize control of someone else's WhatsApp account. The new feature will be entirely optional with users free to continue using the six-digit code method if they prefer. It will also be exclusive to Android at launch and likely for the foreseeable future because iOS does not let third-party apps request access to call data. So <laughs> let me summarize this for you. WhatsApp, when you want to use it on a new device or a second device, requires some sort of authentication mechanism for you to kind of sync them up. And currently, that means sending you a six-digit code, either by SMS or by a phone call, probably reading it to you by automated message. That's just too clunky. And apparently, WhatsApp, for your benefit only, wants to make that easier. And to do that, all you have to do is let them have complete access to all of your calls. What could possibly go wrong? Now, of course, they're going to say that's all they're using it for, or at least that's what all they're using it for now. But that's so on honor system, you're going to, for the purposes of this one special case, which will happen very, very rarely, you're going to give them access to every phone call you've ever made, or at least everyone that's listed in history on your phone, so that it can place a call to your phone and hang up immediately. And based on the phone number that called, say, okay, we trust this new device. Your call log is chock full of metadata, really juicy metadata. And there, there is a reason why Apple on iOS does not allow third-party apps to access it. So anyway, just understand that when that comes up, there's a lot more to it than what they're probably telling you. All right, here's another creepy one, and this is about TikTok. This is an article from TechCrunch, and it says, A change to TikTok's U.S. privacy policy on Wednesday introduced a new section that says the social video app, quote, may collect biometric identifiers and biometric information, unquote, from its users' content. This includes things like, quote, face prints and voice prints, unquote, the policy explained. Reached for comment, TikTok could not confirm what product developments necessitated the addition of the biometric data to its list of disclosures about the information it automatically collects from users, but said it would ask for consent in the case such data collection practices began. The biometric data collection details were introduced in the newly added section image and audio information found under the heading of information we collect automatically in the policy. This is the part of TikTok's privacy policy that lists the type of data the app gathers from users, which was already fairly extensive. The first part of the new section explains that TikTok may collect information about the images and audio that are in users' content, quote, such as identifying the objects and scenery that appear, the existence and location within an image of a face and body features and attributes, the nature of the audio, and the text of the words spoken in the user content, unquote. While that may sound creepy, other social networks do object recognition on images you upload to power accessibility features, like describing what's in an Instagram photo, for example, as well as for ad targeting purposes. Identifying where a person and the scenery is can help with AR effects, or, uh, and AR stands for augmented reality. While converting spoken words to text helps with features like TikTok's automatic captions. 
The policy also notes that this part of the data collection is for, quote, enabling special video effects, for content moderation, for demographic classification, for content and ad recommendations, and for other non-personally identifying operations, unquote, it says. The more concerning part of the new section references a plan to collect biometric data. It states, quote, we may collect biometric identifiers and biometric inf information as defined under U.S. laws, such as face prints and voice prints, from your user content. Where required by law, we will seek any required permissions from you prior to any such collection, unquote. The statement itself is vague as it doesn't specify whether it's considering federal law, states' laws, or both. It also doesn't explain, as the other part did, why TikTok needs this data. It doesn't define the terms face prints or voice prints, nor does it explain how it would go about seeking the required permissions from users or if it would look to either state or federal laws to guide that process of gaining consent. That's important because as it stands today, only a handful of U.S. states have biometric privacy laws, including Illinois, Washington, California, Texas, and New York. If TikTok only requested consent, quote, where required by law, unquote, it could mean users in other states would not have to be informed about the data collection. Reached for comment, a TikTok spokesperson could not offer more details on the company's plans for biometric data collection or how it may tie into other, to either current or future products. And this is a quote from that spokesperson, quote, as part of our ongoing commitment to transparency, we recently updated our privacy policy to provide more clarity on the information we may collect, unquote. It's worth noting, however, that the new disclosure about biometric data collection follows a $92 million settlement in a class action lawsuit against TikTok originally filed in May of 2020 over the social media app's violation of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. The consolidated suit included more than 20 separate cases filed against TikTok over the platform's collection and sharing of the personal and biometric information without user consent. Specifically, this involved the use of a facial filter technology for special effects. In that context, TikTok's legal team may have wanted to quickly cover themselves from future lawsuits by adding a clause that permits the app to collect personal biometric data. So again, we need regulation. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, let's talk about some security stuff now. Uh, so, uh, the Colonial Pipeline, there's a couple interesting things that have emerged about that. Uh, first of all, how it happened. <laughs> it's just classic. This is from CNN. It says... Ransomware attackers gained access to Colonial Pipeline's computer networks in April using a compromised password, according to the company and a cybersecurity firm it hired, leading to the deliberate shutdown of one of America's most important fuel distribution companies and the panic gas buying that ensued for days. The password has been linked to a disused virtual private network account used for remote access, FireEye confirmed to CNN, and the account was not guarded by an extra layer of security known as multi-factor authentication. It's unclear how the attackers obtained the compromised credential, but the revelation about how hackers could force a critical supply chain company to its knees with something so simple underscores the grave risks posed not only by opportunistic cybercriminals, but also the lax digital hygiene of some major U.S. businesses. The password that was used was part of a batch of leaked passwords found on the dark web, according to Bloomberg's interview with Carmichael. And that's, I'm not sure that I, I cut something out. That was maybe the representative. But it's unclear how the hackers got the credentials for the remote access account. And this is a quote uh, from this Carmichael again. It said, quote, We don't see any evidence for phishing for the employee whose credentials were used. We have not seen any other evidence of the attacker activity before April 29th, unquote. Even though the account was no longer in use, hackers were still able to use it to access the company's network, he said. All right, so again, I kind of chopped that up a little bit to keep it short, but basically... This was an account for somebody who's probably no longer at the company, which allowed them to access the company's network remotely via VPN that was not canceled when the person left, I'm guessing. Or uh, it was for an existing person who somehow their credentials got out. And for the sounds of it, my guess is that whoever created this password and this user probably was able to pick their own password, which means that user probably also used that password somewhere else and that password was found in some other data breach. And what the criminals do as soon as they get the whole of these hacked passwords is they try to use them everywhere else. That's called credential stuffing. So anyway, that's just a guess. We may find out more information as the time goes on, but basically just crappy security practices. They absolutely should have had a two-factor authentication on this. And if it really was for a person who was no longer with the company, that account should have been closed as soon as they left. All right, so the next interesting part about this story, though, is that the FBI managed to recover most, but not all, 
of the ransomware payment made by Colonial. Colonial did cough up the money to get their uh, data decrypted. Actually, it turns out that they restored, I think, from backup, but they still paid the, the ransom just to make sure that these guys didn't release any of that information or whatever else. But turns out that somehow the FBI managed to get a portion of that money back, a good bit of that money back. So uh, let me read this article from Sophos. And again, I've chopped this up quite a bit. There was a, this is a really nice long article. If you want to read the whole thing again, check the show notes. But I try to pull out just the most interesting parts uh, to read to you here. And I also included a little bit of background on cryptocurrency and, uh, and Bitcoin and how it works and why it's important. So anyway, uh, here's the ex- expurgated version of this article. Cryptocurrencies aren't managed or regulated by any central authority, such as a financial institution. So transferring crypto coins to someone you don't know and can't identify is like handing over a suitcase full of cash to someone you've never met before and wouldn't recognize again. If you change your mind, or if the seller doesn't deliver the promised product, or the product turns out not to be fit for purpose, then the only way you're getting to get a refund is if the seller agrees to it. There's no clearinghouse that would reverse the transaction. No legal protection built into the process no regulator or ombudsman to handle any appeal you might make. And in all likelihood, there's no easy or reliable way of identifying the seller, even if there were a well-defined international process for settling cryptocurrency disputes. Despite all of that, however, the latest news is that the FBI has apparently managed to claw back 63.7 of the 75 bitcoins handed over by the beleaguered company. That probably leaves you wondering, how on earth was it possible... And if that can be done for Colonial, who paid up in the face of advice not to do so, why can't it be done for everyone else who has ever been blackmailed by crypto coins by cyber crooks? The answer is that although most Bitcoin ownership is anonymous, and although there is no regulatory or baked-in way to force the reversal of an unwanted or unlawful transactions, every Bitcoin payment ends up in someone's Bitcoin wallet, and every wallet has a private key by means of which the contents of that wallet can be spent i.e. transferred onwards to someone else's Bitcoin wallet. So if the FBI were able to get hold of the private key of the Bitcoin wallet, where Colonial's ransom payment ended up, then it could simply transfer those funds to itself, assuming that it had permission from a court to do so, of course, whether it knew who owned that wallet or not. And that is what seems to have happened in this case. Exactly how the FBI managed to get hold of the relevant private key is part of its tradecraft that it understandably hasn't explained. Of course, this raises the question, why doesn't law enforcement do this for everyone who ever gets scammed by crooks? The answer is that it's simply not always possible. Loosely speaking, the recipient of the criminal transaction needs to make some sort of operational blunder, and the organization trying to track down the errant bitcoins typically needs to put in a lot of effort, as well as enjoying at least a little bit of good luck. Bitcoin private keys are usually not only kept private, but also stored in encrypted form so that you need a password to unlock the private key before you can begin to unlock the funds secured by that private key. You can think of the private key as an ATM bank card, and the top-level decryption key as the pin you need before the card can actually be used to do anything. Here are some of the ways a law enforcement team like the FBI trying to recover criminalized bitcoins might end up with the cryptographic data they need to do the job. Don't forget, however, that cyber crooks themselves can use any or all of these techniques to steal legitimately owned crypto coins from you. And the crooks don't have the complexity of applying to a court for formal legal approval first. And then they give three possibilities here for what the FBI may have done. The first one, implant a spyware tool on your computer to search for files and record keystrokes. With a bit of luck, implanted spyware might not only be able to exfiltrate your private key, but also figure out the password needed to unlock it. Offline cryptocurrency wallets and private keys of this sort are known in the trade as cold wallets because they are not meant to be accessible online. Which uh, leads to the second option. Work with a cryptocurrency exchange to access data stored there. Some cryptocurrency fans keep at least some of their funds in what's known as hot wallets, meaning that they trust a third party that runs a crypto coin trading site with their private key so that they can quickly buy and sell crypto coins online. Legitimate exchanges can and will work with law enforcement if required by warrant, and if the exchange has your wallet and your private key, it can hand them over. Also, the exchange could get hacked, or if the exchange itself is crooked, run off with your cryptocurrency itself. And then finally, three, hit the jackpot by subverting an insider. One or more people inside the dark side ransomware crew would have had access to the ill-gotten funds, so the FBI could have acquired the intelligence it needed from them. 
Similarly, if you tell other people your crypto coin passwords, they could sell you out or simply steal the funds themselves in much the same way that they could make phantom withdrawals from your bank account if you told them the PIN of your ATM card. Okay, so we don't really know, and the FBI probably will never say how they got this back. Uh, one thing this article didn't mention uh, is why it was only part of the payment. Uh, it was uh, it was a most of, but not all of the payment. And I think the current running theory there is uh, this dark side is a ransomware as a service company. And so they have what they call affiliates or their own crooked customers. So basically dark side runs an operation where for a fee, uh, a finder's fee, they will help you infect other people's computer and collect ransom. And then they take their cut off the top. My guess is given that they recovered most, but not all, is that they probably recovered the the affiliates portion, the lion's share of that ransom from their wallet, uh, but didn't manage to get the portion, the the finder's fee portion from the dark side ransomware group. That's just a guess. All right, next up, and and this is a a long one. I've cut this article down, but it's, it's still really long, but it's really worth, really worth listening to this one because there's, there's a lot to this. Uh, this is from Wired Magazine, and there were several articles on this. Uh, but this is about a really audacious operation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation here in the United States to subvert a criminal encryption network. So here's most of the important parts of an article from Wired Magazine. It says... Last fall, dozens of boxes stacked with tuna cans left Ecuador on a ship destined for Belgium. Upon arrival, the shipment was picked up by law enforcement, who found that the tins were not full of line-caught albacore, but over 1,300 pounds of cocaine, packed in tidy little pucks. The seizure wasn't a stroke of luck, though, or even a routine search. Belgian authorities knew the drugs would be there, because they'd read the encrypted text messages of the criminals who allegedly sent it. Import requirements, shipping container logistics, the FBI had seen it all, hammered out over a series of texts dating back to October on the ANOM encrypted phone network. That's spelled A-N-O-M. Federal agents hadn't cracked ANOM's cryptography or paid off an informant directly involved in the canny deal. They had, along with the Australian police, spent the past three years running the whole system. As it turns out, the tuna bandits were a drop in a much bigger ocean of a non-related law enforcement activity. Earlier this week, which would have been last week by the time you hear this, an international consortium led by the FBI announced a total of 800 arrests, more than 500 of which were carried out in recent days, that stemmed directly from the information gleaned as a NOM's owner and operator. Authorities intercepted more than 27 million messages through the platform from around 12,000 devices and subsequently seized $45 million in international currency, 250 firearms, and more than 32 tons of illegal drugs. The story of how the FBI got its hooks into Anom is fascinating in its own right. According to court documents, the agency had taken down another communication system marketed to criminals, then convinced one of its developers to become an informant. At the FBI's request, the unidentified person snuck an addition into Anom, a calculator app that relayed every communication sent on the platform back to the FBI. The Anom takeover was an audacious bit of intelligence work. It also raises serious questions about the broader encryption debate. The U.S. Department of Justice and law enforcement agencies around the world have increasingly lobbied in recent years for access to -to end-to-end encrypted communications platforms, which keep data scrambled and undecipherable at all points on its journey across the Internet. Content like messages or phone call data is only decrypted locally on the sender and receiver's devices, making it difficult for law enforcement to access it remotely or through subpoenas. In many cases, such services also simply act as pass-through for encrypted communications and don't store the data at all. The FBI calls this lack of visibility going dark. The agency's repeated preference, along with other law enforcement agencies around the world, is for companies to create so-called backdoors into those systems to allow officials special access. Security researchers unanimously agree that you can't create that sort of intentional weakness without endangering the security of all data on a given service. And the Anom operation, along with several other high-profile cases in recent years, suggests that going dark is not as much of an impediment as law enforcement insists. The FBI and DOJ have certainly been known to overstate their need for backdoors in the past. In a notable 2016 public standoff with Apple, the agency demanded that the tech company create a tool that would allow them to unlock one of the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone 5C. 
Apple resisted, and the legal dispute ultimately ended in a draw because the FBI was able to buy a third-party tool to access the device. A similar situation presented itself last year. The DOJ was again able to get the data it needed without forcing Apple to produce a universal iPhone cracker. Law enforcement can also still access encrypted communications if they gain access to and unlock the physical devices involved. Also, cloud backups have provided key evidence in countless cases. One lesson to take away from Anom, though, is that while it was effective in many ways, it came with the potential collateral damage to the privacy of people who have not been accused of any crime. Even a product geared toward crooks can be used by law-abiding people as well, subjecting those inadvertent targets to draconian surveillance in the process of trying to catch real criminals. And anything that normalizes the concept of total government access, even in a very specific context, can be a step on a slippery slope. Cases like Anam and other cases of law enforcement agencies secretly operating secure communications companies may not fulfill law enforcement's wildest dreams about mass communication access, but they show, with all of their escalations, gray areas, and potential privacy implications, that authorities still have ways to get the information they want. The criminal underworld hasn't gone nearly as dark as it may seem. And there was a reference in that last sentence there. It was a link in the article, uh, which (laughs) I can't really say, you know, as I'm reading it, but it was referring to an article uh, about a company called Crypto AG, um, which I think somewhere in Europe, it may have been uh, out of um, Germany, but it's been, you know, running the supposedly encrypted communications service for, I think, decades. Turns out that it was, uh, it was all a front and it was run by the CIA. So anyway, I think for me, the most disturbing part of this, of this is the same disturbing thing from the crypto AG thing is how do you trust anything anymore? I mean, some really smart, very determined people or people determined to have secure communications who I assume would have tried to vet these companies came away thinking these were the real deal and use these to send really incriminating information and got stung. You know, it makes it really hard to know who to trust. And, you know, I guess this is another reason why open source software is such a big deal, um, you know, because if you can download and compile and run the software yourself, that's maybe the best way you can semi-guarantee that your stuff is really private. And the other thing that springs to mind is that these devices were compromised by some other seemingly harmless app that was on the device. And when you're on the device, even though you have end-to-end encryption, what that means is that at either end, it's unencrypted. So uh, the device itself, because it has to show it to you, has to be able to decrypt that data. And so on that device is the decrypted data. And if there's something else on that device, if that device is compromised, uh, if there's a rogue app, uh, or if somebody can get into that device, then they can still get to those communications. All right, next up, we've talked about Clearview AI before, and that's the company that is... Uh, supposedly only for law enforcement, helping them find people by based on photographs. This company went and scraped social media all over the planet, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it, Google, to find photos of people that were attached to names because we all love tagging people in photos and then creating this massive search database where you say, okay, here's a picture. Do you have this picture anywhere? And if they do, they come back and say, yeah, that's Carrie Parker. Well, there's another site, <laughs> this in the and a real twist, this is supposedly a privacy service for your benefit, but it's not hard to see how this is going to be abused and already is being abused. Uh, so this is a, a news article that I picked up from Yahoo. The facial recognition site PimEyes, and that's P-I-M-E-Y-E-S, is one of the most capable face searching tools on the planet. In less than a second, it can scan through more than 900 million images from across the internet and find matches with startling accuracy but its most distinguishing trait is who can use it. Anyone. While most facial recognition tools are reserved for for police or government use, PimEyes is open to the masses, whether they're hunting down U.S. Capitol riot suspects or stalking women around the web. The search tool stands at the frontier of a new era of facial recognition surveillance, powerfully sophisticated and available to anyone with added abilities for those who pay. But without public oversight or government rules controlling facial recognition use, Researchers expect that sites like PimEyes will multiply, capitalizing on the Internet's vast bounty of photos and videos and making it possible for strangers to keep tabs on people's personal lives. And this is a quote from Stephanie Hare. She's a technology researcher in London. She says, quote, What is stopping them? Literally nothing. The people who put those pictures on the Internet, with their children, their parents, the people who might be vulnerable in their life, 
were not doing it so that they could feed a database that companies could monetize. There's no clear way to fight back. I can leave my phone at home. What I can't leave is my face, unquote. Facial recognition has become an increasingly widespread investigative tool for government authorities and law enforcement. Airports, stores, and schools also use it to verify visitors' identities and boost security. But PimEyes has made it easier than ever for the general public to tap its artificial intelligence power. When a user submits a photo of someone's face, the site will return a catalog of images linked to other places where that person appears around the web, including old videos, news stories, photo albums, and personal blogs. The search results don't include exact names, but they offer a detail and precision that has left some people stunned. Pete, a 40-year-old man in Germany who asked that only his first name be used, said he ran a 17-year-old photo of himself drinking a beer on a train and was blown away when it returned a link to a recent video of him on YouTube. And this guy says, quote, How did it even work? I'm older. It's a different facial expression, even a different position of my head. It's very creepy and way too powerful. This should not be in the public available for everyone, unquote. PimEyes says in its online quote-unquote manifesto that it believes searching for one's face online should be a basic human right open to anyone, not just corporations and governments, and that the company's work is, counterintuitively, a boon for privacy. PimEyes sells subscription packages to people who want to find where their photos have been posted online or get alerted when they're posted somewhere else. Though they've built a search engine devoted to unraveling online mysteries, the developers won't say practically anything about themselves. A representative for the company, who declined to share their name and said they'd only talk over email and asked to be referred to only as the director, declined to answer questions about how PIMI works, who is involved with the company, or even where the company is based. And this is a quote from the director. They say, quote, Staying completely anonymous is very important to us, unquote. The company has defended itself against criticism by saying it's to be used only by people uploading their own images, but PimEyes enforces that rule with a single checkbox that anyone could quickly click to circumvent. The company has no other rules in place to prevent anyone from scouring the web for someone else. And this is another quote from this mysterious director. They say, quote, The most valuable resource is information, and we allow people to find, monitor, and protect pieces of information about themselves. We don't encourage people to search for other people. It is their own decision to break the rules, unquote. The tool has become wildly popular among strangers looking to essentially stalk women around the web, said Aaron DeVera, a security researcher in New York. On 4chan and other anonymous forums, PimEyes subscribers with deeper search capabilities than unpaid users subscriptions start around 30 bucks a month, routinely create threads offering to search out any photo and relay back the results. Almost all the photos are of young girls and women pulled from their social media accounts, their dating app profiles, or creep shots stealthily photographed without their consent. And this next sentence has a quote from Devera again. It says, The people searching often hope to find other photos or learn more personal details, quote, so they can creep on them further. Something like this that is so off the shelf really does lower the barrier to entry for nefarious activities, unquote. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. Oh man, I don't think there's much more to say about that. I think that pretty much says it all. But again, this is why we need regulation. There is nothing stopping this from happening. All this data is out there. It all exists. And there are going to be people who are going to find ways to monetize that data. Now, it's also worth, of course, saying that, you know, even with regulations, there's going to be people doing this anyway that are going against the law. But at least then, you know, we've got law enforcement agencies that are out there looking for this and can, you know, prosecute people when they find them doing it. I mean, you can't argue against the regulation by saying it's not perfect. It's, all, it's like saying, well, we can't pre prevent murders from happening. So why should we even have a law? We need the law. All right, let's end on a positive note here. Uh, one last story here, and this is about Venmo. Uh, Venmo, if you're not familiar, uh, it's an extremely popular app used by people to exchange money. Uh, you know, so you're out at lunch with a group of people and someone wants to chip in on the meal and they say, here, let me just Venmo that to you and they'll send you 10 bucks or whatever. But it's used for lots of different payment things. But here's the thing. Venmo is a social media app. First and foremost, they're about connecting you with your friends and other people. And so I don't know how you mix these two things. But by default, kind of like Facebook has done for a long time, by default, all these settings are public, meaning that if you don't take steps, your purchases and your friend list are available to anybody else who wants to find you. 
to the point where people have gotten busted because they've used Venmo to pay off their weed dealer. And that was public knowledge. <laughs> so anyway, there's been, um, there's been at least a positive step here, and you can now claw back some of this privacy. So this is an article from the EFF, and this will lead into our tip of the week. It took two and a half years and one national security incident, but Venmo did it, folks. Users now have privacy settings to hide their friends lists. EFF first pointed out the problem with Venmo friends lists in early 2019 with our Fix It Already campaign. While Venmo offered a setting to make your payments and transactions private, and note there, by the way, you had to make that change. It was by default public. There was no option to hide your friends lists. No matter how many settings you tinkered with, Venmo would show your full friends list to anyone else with a Venmo account. That meant an effectively public record of the people you exchanged money with regularly, along with whoever the app might automatically have imported from your phone contact list or even your Facebook friends list. The only way to make a friends list quote-unquote private was to manually delete friends one at a time, turn off auto-syncing, and when the app wouldn't even let users do that, monitor for auto-populated friends and remove them one by one too. The public no matter what friends list design was a privacy disaster waiting to happen, and it happened to the President of the United States. Using the app's search tool and all those public friends lists, BuzzFeed News found President Biden's account in less than 10 minutes, as well as those of the members of the Biden family, senior staffers, and members of Congress. This appears to have been the last straw for Venmo. After more than two years of effectively ignoring calls from the EFF, Mozilla, and others, the company has finally started to roll out privacy settings for friends lists. As we've noted before, this is the bare minimum. Providing more privacy settings options so that users can opt out of the publication of their friends list is a step in the right direction. But what Venmo and any other payment app must do next is make privacy the default for transactions and friends lists, not just an option buried in the settings. In the meantime, follow these steps to lock down your Venmo account. And this is our tip of the week. If you use Venmo, you absolutely need to change these things. Now, I'm going to be describing you know, what to do and pictures are worth a thousand words. So there is a link to this article from the EFF in the show notes. And this will probably also be mentioned in my blog that, uh, that will be out by the time you hear this. So if you want to go to firewallstonesubdragons.com, there will probably be a link to this there as well. Okay, so how do you, how do you make your uh, friends list private? So you tap the three lines at the top corner of the home screen. And by the way, uh, I found this out recently. I think this is funny. That little menu that we've all gotten used to, uh, the little three dashes, the little three lines, it's called the burger menu or the hamburger menu because it looks kind of like an icon for a hamburger, you know, two buns with the meat in the middle. Anyway, so <laughs> the menu button or the burger button, if you find that button, uh, go into that and then select settings near the bottom. And then from there, you need to select privacy and then under privacy, select friends list. And by the way, if it does, if that friends list isn't there, um, your app might not be updated. So make sure you try updating your app and restarting it uh, to, to get the latest version. And then obviously, once you get into friends list, there's three options, public, friends, and private. Just, just make it private. <laughs> just go full tilt, make it private. There's also, once you make it private, there's this other option to um, appear in other users' friends lists. I would turn that off too. And then finally, if you haven't done this already, uh, back on the privacy settings page, where it's under learn more about privacy, make sure you set that to privacy, private as well so that all your transactions are also private. And then also, there's a little button there for past transactions. Select that under privacy, and then you can change all of those to private as well. So at least you can go back after the fact and make them private, even though they haven't been, at least now you can. There is one more setting you might want to look at if you go all back to the main settings page. There's one called friends and social. And from there, you can unlink it from Facebook if you did that, which you never should do. But if you did it anyway, you can still unlink it there. And also your phone contact list. That's also something you should never do, as we talked about earlier in the show. Um, your contact list, your call history, all these things are, have lots of juicy data about you. Do not give those away freely. And there you have it. All the news and your tip of the week. All right. Long show. I can always feel it in my voice after a show like that. You know, I've edited this down. I've been talking for well over an hour and a half recording this so far, and it's been, I'm sure, edited down to much less than that. But nevertheless, uh, <laughs> I always feel it on my throat after doing a long episode like this. Uh, just a few more things, though, before we go. So um, first of all, again, I'm starting to do some public speaking now. If you'd like me to come speak to your group, well, virtually, go to bit.ly slash firewalls-speaker. That's bit.ly and capital F on firewalls and capital S on speaker. 
And of course, if you go to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons and go to my contact uh, page, you'll find this there as well. But that's a form you can fill out to request me to come speak to your group. Currently, I'm just kind of doing that part for, for free. Uh, if it's a really large group, we'll talk about that. But um, uh, what I'm starting to do now also, though, is do some one-on-one consulting. Uh, so if you would like some help uh, with your privacy and security stuff, uh, I'm doing that as well. And you can find my contact for information for that also on the contact page of firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, we've got some great shows coming up. I've got an interview with a gentleman from a U.S. agency that is trying to make us all more secure with something that seems mundane but is really powerful uh, called a software bill of materials. We're going to talk about that. I've got another cybersecurity expert interview coming up. That's coming up soon. But uh, next week, and I actually juggled around my order of the interviews because I just interviewed these guys. I haven't even edited it yet, but it's going to come out in next week's interview. I'm kind of pushing it ahead because this group uh, runs what's called a hack a sat program which is sat for satellite so we're going to have a really fascinating interview about uh hacking of satellites both uh commercial and government and basically what these guys are doing as part of defcon which is the big hacker conference coming up and i'll talk about more about that in a minute they have this program kind of like a bug binder program um, or a bug finding program where they bring in some satellite stuff and tell hackers go at it find bugs, help us find things so we can fix them. And it, it's going to be a fascinating interview. But I'm bumping up the, the order because if this is something that interests you at all, if you'd like to try out the Hackasat program and help the government you know, lock down all these orbital IoT devices, uh, you can get involved. They're actually having qualifications through a Capture the Flag tournament, a CTF, uh, and the registration for that closes on June 27th. So go to hackasat.com. That's H-A-C-K. ASAT.com for more details. Uh, there's lots of big prizes if you're interested. But anyway, I wanted to rejigger the schedule to make sure that we did this before then. So especially, you know, after you listen to the interview, you might be more inspired uh, and you'll have a chance to uh, apply for the qualifications for that. So as I mentioned, DEFCON, I am going to DEFCON. I'm really looking forward to it. It's my first foray into the uh, this massive hacker conference it's going to be a little bit weird this year because it's still kind of hybrid due to covid uh but you know i'm i'm cool with that for my first uh first defcon you know defcon light will be okay (laughs) but here's the part that might be interesting to you i'm planning to take a recorder with me and get some action stuff uh, for you know from the floor at the defcon conference from some of the presentations i'm going to record some material on there and do a defcon special when i get back and here's another kicker for you if you happen to be a defcon i'd love to uh meet up and say hey you can find my contact info again from my website. But if you get a challenge coin, the one probably rarely used benefit of the challenge coin is that if you present one to me in person, it's good for a free drink on me. So again, if you go to patreon.com and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons there, you'll find all the information about the challenge coin. Uh, there's also an article on my uh, blog article about it at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, lots of ways to find out about that. But if you become a patron and you get a coin and you're going to DEFCON or, you know, who knows, maybe you'll meet me somewhere else. Uh, if you present that coin, first round's on me. Now, there's been lots of other stories that I didn't cover today. Um, Apple just had their big worldwide developer conference that they do every year. They announced some really cool new features for um, the Mac and for iPhones and iPads and all the other Apple stuff. Uh, iOS basically and Mac OS changes. Uh, I will cover those later. There's also been some announcements for Android as well, Android 12, some other privacy features. So maybe I'll just do a whole new show at some point about those. I'll wait a little bit longer because a lot of times they announce these things and they get delayed or they get changed. So I'm not going to go too deep into that. But I mean, Apple's got some great features coming out and I really am happy about some of the stuff they're doing there. Uh, Android too. Android's coming up with some more privacy stuff as well. So uh, I know about those, but I'm not going to cover them now. I will wait and cover them when they are a little closer to reality. Okay, that's it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't. Love to get some great reviews on iTunes or Amazon for the book or the podcast. If you post them there, I will read them here. Super psyched about getting it back out into the real world. I'm going maskless in more places now. i got some travel lined up, uh, some really fun stuff happening. Really glad to do that. And the two vaccine shots has enabled that to happen. So go out and get your shots. Help other people get their shots. Let's put this behind us. Take care, everybody. See you next week. And as always... Don't get caught with your drawbridge down.